inexpensive innovation and intriguing. Street food has been a strong part of many countries' food and culture for centuries. In fact, one of the first documented cases of street food was actually discovered in ancient Greece, where vendors were known to sell small fried fish. These easy grab-and-go purchases were commonly consumed by lower-income families who didn't have access to a kitchen of their own. Since it was cheap to purchase, it allowed individuals to feed their families or themselves without breaking the budget. And as the world grew, so did the obsession with street food. In 1910, vendors in New York City would sell oysters. That is, of course, until it led to overfishing and some pollution, which caused prices to rise, making it unsustainable to the street food market. Though today's street food looks a little different, there are still many individuals who are continuing the tradition that their ancestors once created. So what does street food mean today? Hi everyone, I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Zach Mack. And this is So You Want to Run a Restaurant, powered by Back of House, where we let you have a seat at the table and talk about trending topics in the restaurant industry. So I was reading somewhere that it's estimated that 2.5 billion people around the world eat street food. And that street food itself is classified as ready-to-eat foods or drinks sold by a vendor or hawker in a public place. A hawker. Wow, okay. Yeah, I mean, think about the context of that. Like, how many parts of the world where people are working on the go, especially, I think you could you can make this argument for more places in the world now that we have so many people who kind of work from their cars as drivers or delivery people. Uh, they don't have the luxury of being able to run home to eat all the time. So it's not surprising to me that almost half the world's population or a little under a quarter of the world's population is kind of regularly eating out on the go. Well, yeah. And for a street vendor, I think it's easy to store. And so you see a lot of them with just, I mean, the classic is the food carts lined up against, you know, lined up along the street, but also being sold from a bicycle or a truck or temporary pop-up locations. So, and also there are entire U.S. festivals dedicated to street food vendors. Oh yeah, that's that's become a huge thing, and those are also two sort of like a, a, a different take on what street food can be. Because I know, you know, from certain experiences, street food from the New Yorker way of looking at it, it was like hot dogs back in the day and, and hot dog water, you know. But things have changed since then. Now you can get everything from like from sushi to whatever you want, like any kind of unique kanji, whatever like unique cuisine you want can come in truck form. So it's kind of taking the idea of what street food is and just kind of shrunk down the restaurant and put it on wheels. Um, again, that counts. And it shows you that there's a market for people who want to be able to bring the accessibility to prepared food anywhere, or also the access to prepared food to more people, uh, even if you don't have a brick and mortar spot. Yeah. I mean, in Chicago, for example, we don't really have a lot of street food vendors. This was a real interesting thing for me when I first visited New York City. I mean, I'll be honest with you. My first thought was, wow, do people actually buy from all these carts? They are everywhere. Oh, yeah. I Not only that, but I mean, did you... Where did you guys, where did you eat when you came or did you see anything in particular? Oh, I saw everything. I saw everything from hot dogs to, I, I think, uh, Greek food, shawarma. I saw, I, I mean, just the, the, the whole gamut. The shawarma trucks are big. I've definitely seen on the halal truck foods are big. There was specifically one group up on, uh, on the West 50s called the halal guys. And the cart was so famous. People used to come to city just to eat from this cart on the street. Yeah. Uh, and it's one of those, it's like a perfect testament to this sort of thing. Another one that's taken off recently is this thing. Uh, oh, well, I should say halal food guys are so popular. They've actually got a chain of places now. They actually have yes. brick and mortar stuff near me. I actually might go get some of them after talking about it. It's making me want it. <laughs> but there's also really popular things taking off. Breakfast tacos took off, which is not you know, it's an Austin style dish that took off in the city because uh, this, this company, King David's Tacos, opened up a cart down in financial district that they would catch business guys or business people 
running from the train to their office and they would sell breakfast tacos in the morning out of the train. Wow. So, uh, and that's like really taken off too. Again, it's all, it's all about a convenience thing, but it's also the tacos are fantastic. So they know that people will be like, okay, I can either slave away at something kind of unsatisfying at home or uh, for breakfast, which I really don't have time to do anyway, or I can conveniently pick this up. Yeah. So I think street food, it usually hits both like first, this is great. Secondly, this is super convenient. And third, it's probably very affordable uh, and relatively portable. So it's a, in a, in a very human side of food culture and restaurant culture to me because it, it meets us at kind of like an intersection of, of us needing to be who we are and kind of be out in the wild. I don't know, not to get mm. too Bourdain or poetic about it, but that's just kind of what it feels like <laughs> to me. No, I like it. Please be as poetic as you'd like on here. We welcome that kind of chat, Zach. <laughs> the thing we do have a lot of around here is uh, food trucks, but I feel like those are very different than street food vendors where it's just a little cart because so many of the food trucks are restaurants that are just delivering their food to places that wouldn't normally have them or high traffic areas. One thing I did read online, though, that was interesting when you're talking about the halal guys is that some of these street vendors have actually received a Michelin star rating. Did you know about this? I had, I've heard about this before, which I think is actually awesome. That should, that's the way it should be to me. I, it's that, that is so incredible to me. So it is Hong Kong soya sauce, chicken rice, and noodle, which became the first street food vendor in the world to be awarded a Michelin star. I, I thought to myself, wow, first off, that sounds amazing. And wow, if you're going to get this soy sauce, chicken, rice, and noodles, what a better place to get it than Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, seriously, that, that also, we, uh, we're talking about the cost here. Like, I think I'm reading here on my notes. It says it was 185 for the, the famous noodles that they made at the, at the Ming's Chicken. Uh, versus the average price being twenty two dollars to four hundred and forty five for a Michelin star place. Wow, making it by the way the cheapest of all time Michelin starred restaurants ever. Which is fair. That's 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 accessible. I think that's the most important thing is people going forward assuming if this food is cheap, therefore it can't be good. And that's not true. I've certainly learned that through my life. I mean, I was telling you before we came on here. You know, the other night the convenience of this stuff is is so important. And I had just left. It was a the first time a friend, a dear friend of mine had reopened up their karaoke bar after COVID and we we're having a very late night and I was super hungry because it had been a long time since dinner and there happened to be a food truck outside or sorry, a food cart outside. And I decided I wanted a Philly cheesesteak and I was able to just kind of like run up and I tapped my phone to pay and everything It was as easy as could be. And I got a delicious meal that I ate on the street, super New York style. I, I was oh, yeah. very, very happy. Like that was one of those moments that actually felt like COVID was over, but also it just, it felt so New York to be able to eat something so good that it just come from a street corner. You are a New York movie in the making and you don't even know it. <laughs> I feel like that's what you see in all the movies. You know, even in Law & Order, they'd always stop and get a hot dog before they went and track down somebody, their next suspect, you know? I mean, I used to love that on the show. No, it's the best. The, water, the hot dogs are great too. But yeah. Philly cheesesteak. I mean, that's a blessing. If you can get one of those in a corner, then you're really lucky. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think there's something else to be said about their breaking down social and economic barriers. And a lot of these foods have been passed down for generations. They've been in the family for a long time. So they're continuing to perfect it or grow it. There is the tamale guy in Chicago uh, who's very popular and he walks around the bars or he did during, during COVID uh, or pre-COVID, sorry, uh, selling tamales out of this cooler. And everybody loved Tamale Guy. There was even a Twitter handle that was dedicated to where Tamale Guy was if you wanted a tamale and it was late night at like 1 a.m. You were just dying for something to eat. So I don't know. I think that was pretty cool. No, that's a, that's a honestly, that's the sort of food experience that that is hugely cultural to a city. If you know that about where you live, that that's someone doing something right. It's also like lately, a lot of the debate in New York, especially, has kind of come down to how the city 
this is specific to place to place, but how the city interacts with the people who run businesses like that. It's one thing if you've got like the truck and you can kind of get your permits and stuff set, set up the way you need to, but they've made it really, really hard for a lot of these people who operate these smaller stands and smaller carts to operate. They make it almost impossible to find a spot. Uh, permitting and things like that yeah. can be very expensive. Uh, they have to, uh, they're forced, at least in New York, to store their, even trucks for this matter, but carts and trucks have to be stored in very specific depots at night. They can't just be put someplace random. And this can be a lot for people to manage for a business that may not see, you know, Michelin star money turnover, even though they may be, you know, food that people travel to come and try. So I, I always find it, it's kind of weird. We, we still, we hold them in such esteem and people will literally line up hours in some cases to try this food. But at the same time, we don't give them the dignity in some cases of what a regular restaurant has if they happen to have brick and mortar. Yeah. Yeah. And little do you know that the next street vendor you try could become Michelin star. Right. Exactly. That's the other thing. Some of these, some of these operators start off this way and then a year later, two years later, they're on the food network. So, or opening up their seventh restaurant. So it's, it's true. This is how some people get their, their stuff going. And, and honestly, I think it's one of the most beautiful elements of food culture. I just, I really hope cities keep embracing the evolution that it's seen in the last 10 years and that in 20 years, we're going to see something even better out of it. Today, we're talking with Joelle Parento, owner of Wolfdown Canada, which also recently expanded to the USA with a new location in Vegas. Wolfdown is known for its hyper-focused Berlin-inspired street food menu, especially their mouth-watering German Donner that can be made for meat lovers or vegans and both for the same cost. Joelle is also an open and transparent active blogger whose medium posts have sparked some seriously thoughtful conversation in the food service industry. She's talked about everything from Wolfdown running more like a tech startup than an actual restaurant to her hiring and tipping ethos and in one of her more talked about posts, her love for third-party delivery. So we're excited to talk about all of this and more today. Thanks for coming on, Joelle. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Joelle, we're really excited to be talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. You know, there's so much cultural significance that's tied to street food. And you said before in interviews how much you've liked it. and But I, I'm actually curious, is there anything personal to you that, that brought you into your love of street food or anything specific that happened in your life that, that brought this to the forefront? I actually, in, in this case, with German street food, it started with falling in love with a German boy who uh, <laughs> brought me to Germany. Um, That's and, a great story. Yeah, and it's funny because he's he's not the foodie type at all. And yet when I met him here in Canada, he just kept talking about this donor. And I was like, it must be really special for him to be talking about it so much. And he always said like the one thing that he missed from Germany was this food. And he hyped it up so much that by the time I finally got to Germany, I was like, it can't possibly live up to the expectations. Um, and I thought, you know, chalked it up to nostalgia or whatnot. And lo and behold, of course, I get there, I try it for the first time. And it was just like, mind blown immediately and I was just like like what is this and and more importantly like how do we not know about this yet like how the Germans kept this a secret for so long yeah so we would we'd eat it every single day when we were there and then we'd come back home and we'd be like then we'd have an issue because we were like going through withdrawal (laughs) just like oh my god I need like I we'd we'd be there sitting on the couch middle of the night be like you know what I'm craving don't know (laughs) that's literally what led to opening a restaurant. That's how how much we fell in love with it. I'm craving the same thing. Yeah. Amazing. I always thought that bratwurst would be the number one 
German street food. When I think about yeah, when I go to all these German festivals, it's always pretzels, hot pretzels and brats. And maybe that's just American cultural cultural misinformation there. But well, I actually I saw that you you wrote about this actually. You said currywurst. Everyone always comes up asking for currywurst, but I honestly found when I was in Berlin too, I, I saw more Germans eating donor than I saw eating currywurst. I I feel like I don't know. In Berlin anyway. For sure. I think it's a it's a common tourist misconception. Um but also, I think a lot of, and this is all stuff I've learned, um, you know, recently. Uh, there's a also very two very distinct cultures in Germany. Let's say there's the Bavarian culture, which you'll know for Oktoberfest and sausages right. and this kind of stuff, and then there's the rest of Germany. Um, <laughs> my my fiance is on the other side, so he's like, yeah, no, that's that's not. We don't talk about that. <laughs> so it kind of like. I guess Canada and Quebec. So you just have two very distinct cultures with their own their own things. But uh, if you ask a, a real German kind of thing, this is the street food that they grow up on, and that's nostalgic that they eat all the time. It's also the late night drunk post club food. Yeah. I think maybe one of the reasons that it's not as well known, perhaps, is that. Across Germany, um, the donor shops are usually just small local mom and pops owned by um, by Turkish migrants who moved to, to Germany. So it's not like there's a big chain marketing the heck out of it that we've seen. So it's just it really flies below the radar. And that's why I think a lot of tourists just miss it um, when they're they're down there. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense to me that street food in general, I think, has got such a cultural influence to it. And it's always like the one cart that's selling the one or two things only. And then that's their that's really their speciality. I know Zach mentioned currywurst. And I feel like you've gotten I've heard that you've gotten some flack for not carrying currywurst on the menu. For those that don't know, can you describe, can you tell us what currywurst is and why you've chosen not to include it? Yeah, so currywurst is a specific type of sausage that they would sell in Germany. And then it usually comes with this curry ketchup that you dip it in. And it's, to me, it's a common, like, yeah, tourist thing. You go and you have it just like as a little snack. Because it's just like a little sausage cut up in little pieces um, that you dip. So there's a couple of things. One, it's completely different from donor. That would be almost like asking a burger shop why they don't do sausages and you're just like because that's not what we do sure and not to mention especially at wolf down we're very focused on doing one thing and doing one thing well and i like hyper focused menus so you know the thing i fell in love with is donor i i don't have an issue with currywurst it's just not my favorite thing not to mention just as a business plan the difference with donor and currywurst is I think currywurst is kind of like a novelty. So you can have it every once in a while as a snack versus like donor you can eat every day. It's it's a sandwich. like so. I know I could. I definitely could. <laughs> yeah, from, I do. Um, but, <laughs> so from, from a business perspective, I just business model, I don't think it makes sense. Not to mention we run a very lean operation. So all we have is our vertical grills in terms of cooking mechanisms. So like. We wouldn't even have anything to grill sausages on, not to mention like making sausages is a whole different ballgame and it's just not my specialty. So, yeah. I'm in business. I'm in business with an Austrian. Mm. And uh, so I can definitely attest to that. They take it very seriously. And you know what it is? It's own kind of endeavor and also worlds apart in terms of food. It's, it's differently, different culturally. And I think if it fills a different purpose, I definitely agree with you that donor is something I could eat every day. Mm. 
and sausages maybe not quite as much. Uh, but I actually this you just bring up a really good point because I've worked in a lot of different restaurants and finding that focus on the menu. You don't want to be that you know Jersey Diner situation where there's fifteen hundred things on the menu, but honing things down. Like, have you worked in restaurants before and was like a previous experience something that led you into being like, okay, it's so much easier to hone this menu in to do a couple of things super super well. Uh, or was it just based on cost or how did you come up with that kind of operating ethos? That's, that's a great question, actually. So I had, I'll be honest, I had zero restaurant experience uh, at all. <laughs> I oh, never wow. even worked at a fast food. Uh, my background is actually more in startups. So I think the, the answer is kind of twofold. One, that's a reflection of the startup mentality of just being like lean, optimized, streamlined. Um, there's a lot of that. And then probably match that with the fact that I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> Why would I try to do more than one thing? And then, uh, probably also just, I'm also just a minimalist by nature. And I'm the type of person who goes to a restaurant and like, I hate big menus cause I just get paralyzed and I don't know what I want. Like I can't even, I don't even like when like Italian places have pizza and pasta. Cause how am I supposed to choose between the two. Such good carb options. It's just the struggle yeah. is real there. I, I'd rather go to a pasta restaurant for really good pasta and a pizza place yes. for pizza. Don't just confuse me. <laughs> um, so just by my nature, I prefer hyper-focused menus. Um, and, but then also just operationally, it just, to, I'm, you know, looking at it as a business, it just makes way more sense. And the question there is just obviously, can you do enough volume with, with, few items and we've proven that we can. So why would I add more complexity to it? Yeah. So you mentioned that you run your business kind of like a tech startup. So does that mean that mm -hmm. you're pretty, you're super, I don't know, tech, tech savvy or you're, you're plugged into all those areas? Do you expect your staff to be up to knowledge on some of the restaurant technology that's out there? Like, how does that work for you? Yeah, it's a good question. Actually, to be honest, because most of our staff is quite young they it's not hard for them to adapt i think they would have more problems if we were using like archaic legacy type systems uh if anything the restaurant industry is quite behind in technology we're and whereas like all i know is technology so we brought it in from from day one so it's kind of like everything's on your you know your schedules on the app we use slack for team messaging so but to these kids it's it's second nature right so we I honestly can't imagine how people run restaurants before all this existed, to be honest. Um, and we're, we're, we're very stressfully, I can tell you. Yeah, <laughs> like we're cashless, so I, I wouldn't even want to have to think about cash and um, you know online ordering and all this kind of stuff. We're paperless as well. Everything just goes to an online KDS. So I, yeah, I think it would be much worse. To so in terms of technology, so in terms of technology, that's what you're talking about. You have a streamlined ordering process. I imagine delivery things like that. What, what has you, what have you found has been like the, the biggest godsend for you? What, what, what has helped you the most? If you had to pick one thing, if there's like everything were to, you know, break down tomorrow, what would be the one thing you'd want to keep going forward outside of the rotisseries? Yeah. yeah. That's technically technology. From a tech perspective, I mean, especially during COVID, the thing that saved us was third party delivery because how do we keep feeding people when they're mandated not to leave their house? Yeah, I want to talk more about that because I know that that Medium post struck up quite the conversation online. I mean, all the operators that we've talked to have a really, 
they either kind of love, have a love-hate relationship with third-party delivery or they hate it. But you were the person that talked about loving it. And I feel like that post, I mean, I even saw so many comments going back and forth on LinkedIn Mm -hmm. on on your particular Medium post. So I want to hear more about that and some of the some of the comments that you got. For sure. I think that, so the, those who hate it, they just kind of fixate on the cost of it, the 30% that they take and they they kind of just play the victim and say like that, you know, that they're robbing us and this kind of stuff. Whereas I look at everything very pragmatically from a business perspective. And I think of how much it would cost me to do it on my own. And it's about as much to be honest. And I, and I couldn't do it as efficiently because it's a, it's a volume game. And the whole beauty of those systems is that they have they optimize you know dry, having drivers to you the moment you need them um, and you're only able to do that with massive scale so there's no way we could do that on our own and i give the example that you know when people say oh i could i could do it myself i with my own fleet like there's no way we could have on demand someone you know, 12 drivers in our restaurant in the next 10 minutes during dinner rush, right? And then not have them just sitting around in the middle of the afternoon and having to pay them for the downtime. So just from a a pure, just could I do it better or easier myself? No. So what's the value of that to me? So not only do I recognize that actually running this kind of thing does cost quite a bit, so their fees are not completely out of whack, but that's just actually getting the delivery done, not to mention the marketing. And, you know, where I go to find out about food is on Uber Eats. So there's a huge, I'd say probably like half our customers that are ordering on there know about us and they're going to look for us to get it. And and half of them are discovering us there. So there's the whole marketing dollar aspect of it. And then what we did very simply from the get-go was just, I mean, given that what the margins are, what they are in the industry, I knew there was no way we could just, you know, take a 30% cut and not be bleeding money. So we set out the gate, look, the only way this business model works is if we adjust our pricing accordingly. So we upped our pricing on those services. And I kind of basically said, look, if they want it, they want it at this price. I'm not going to take a loss on this because it's not sustainable. And at the end of the day, we basically give the consumer the option to choose, you know, if you want the convenience, I will allow you to, because I mean, they want it. They, we would get calls like, why are you not on Uber Eats yet? Like, or oh wow, they want that convenience. They want to be able to get it delivered to their desk. So I said, yeah, no problem. It's just going to be a bit more expensive. They're like, you know, whatever, we don't care. We just want it. So basically, I believe that, you know, true hospitality is giving the consumers the options and then let them decide what they want to do with it. So in our case, our sandwich in store is $12 on Uber Eats, it's $14.50. So you know what, like if you really want the convenience, no problem, it's just an extra $2.50. If you want to save money, if you don't want to pay that, no problem, come see me. Sure. And then the choice is theirs, but at least I'm, I'm giving them the choice. And if they want to pay for the convenience, they will. And they've, they have. <laughs> so, I mean, that's an incredibly sound argument because everyone we've talked to who brought this up has never once brought up the idea of separate pricing for these platforms. No one's telling you it has to be the same price. As far as I know, right? Uber Eats isn't like we have to copy and paste 
what you charge in shop as you do. This was a big, uh, there was a big confusion with this in the beginning. In the beginning, they said they don't want you to do it. Okay. It used to be in the contract, but uh, I just said, screw it. This is the only way it works. They're not policing it. And then more and more companies started to do it now. Like all the big players, like Chipotle is doing it, McDonald's doing it, so screw it. Um, and just recently, I don't think they've announced it yet, but like, so they're, they won't officially say it, but they don't, you can do whatever you want at this point. They kind of follow I figured after post-COVID, this is their only angle to try to survive if they're going to survive the regulations coming down on them from cities, right? I Because I feel like I don't know what the difference has been in Canada for you. In New York and in Chicago, I know in San Francisco, there's been huge slapdowns on like the city levels, at least, on, on what they're yeah. allowed to charge. Uh, but then they still work around it by charging fees on top of fees, which I, I don't get. I'm, no, I'm not a lawyer or a legislator, but uh, I figure like this is like their one kind of survival method mechanism, right? And, and I feel like... Is it is it a lot of is it is that taking taking on uh, popularity in Ottawa? Are people doing that in Canada as well? They are, um, maybe a little bit slower, but it's it's the only way. It really makes sense. So, how much of your business is delivery versus walk-in? I'm I'm just 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 to put it out there. It's a quick answer, I guess. During especially during COVID, actually, we were doing about. 60% on Uber Eats. Wow. Well, I read somewhere that you sold over $2,000 of, of, of donor just on Uber Eats on your last day alone. Uh, th- sorry, this was, you broke all of your previous week's sale on Uber Eats, and this was in March of 2020. And, um, yeah. which was just, that was, I mean, that was an incredible number to me. Uh, yeah, the numbers are mind boggling. Like, I think I was looking at it before, I was like, Uber Eats had delivered something like 50,000 donors for us since we, with them and it's like wow that's, there's no way I, I could have done that and that's that's a lot of people eating a lot of donors so if they made that possible how could I be upset about it not to mention I mean a lot of the restaurant owners as well who complain about it one thing I've heard is like oh people are just lazy or like they just we've made it too easy for them but in our case um like we're in center town and the parking situation is not great and um a lot of people don't have cars yeah. or they have kids at home or puppy at home. There's COVID. They're like literally in quarantine. There's a thousand and one reasons why it's just not, not even not convenient. It's not possible for you to come to my restaurant. So we've made it possible for you to still get it. And it's not cannibalizing our sales. It's actually re- in many cases, increasing the repeat, you know, the, the ability for them to have it more often. So why is that? Why is that bad? Yeah. No, that I mean that makes total sense, and especially with mm-hmm. the, the, I think the difference a lot of Americans don't realize the difference in the lockdowns that happened in Canada were a little stricter and more frequent. Um, so it was a little different. Like the necessity for ongoing? delivery was totally yeah ongoing. We still don't have like we still don't have dining. Wow, wow. So oh wow, I didn't realize that. Um, so yeah, so I guess my question to that as well is, I guess being such a delivery focused business. Were there any drawbacks to that? Like, did you have to figure out how to fine tune the, the food to get out there? Because a lot of places, you know, some stuff doesn't travel well. Donor might not be one of those things, so to speak. Yeah. But is there was there anything that you would like kind of figure out or tweak for delivery versus on site? Or was, what was the hardest part about getting primed to be a delivery focused business? Um, so, I mean, we built it that way from day one. We were only two years old. So we kind of we were born in this world. Um, and and I, yeah. <laughs> I knew. I mean, I'm a huge Uber Eats consumer. So I think that's. Another thing, I've had some conversations with Uber Eats and it's interesting because 
they're always kind of surprised talking to me how much I understand about it. One, because I understand the tech, but two, I was like, I don't know how many restaurateurs are actually users of the platform. I'm like, I'm a heavy user. Like I get it. Oh, wow. And I get how upset I am if I receive something and it's like mashed up or whatever. So I under, I inherently understood how that worked. Um, so we built the business, like we designed it from day one to be functional for that. But two, yes, it's, it's street food. It's inherently portable that, so it was kind of designed from that, for that, from the get go. Honestly, the biggest drawback sometimes is that you're relying on some drivers that are not always, um, the most professional. Um, but that that's, like that's in any business though. And it's a small percentage actually. Most of them are are fantastic. And we've, because we do so much volume, we have drivers that we see like five times a night and they've become like <laughs> part of the team and, and they're great. Excellent. So shifting gears just a little bit, I want to talk about costs because you've managed to, I was reading that you, uh, if you want to meet Donner, it's the same as a vegan and that you don't, you don't modify the price. Can you talk a little about your ethos around that? For sure. Um, there's nothing that drives me more crazy than like people like they really want something, but if, uh, because they're on a budget or whatnot, they can't get what they want because of the, because of the cost. Um, and I want people to make the decision of like, what are you craving? What do you want? Um, and make it based on, on that. So what we did instead of sep separating out the, the food cost by like chicken, beef and tofu and say, okay, the beef comes to this, the we just did a weighted average and made them all that price. And, then, you know, you're not having like one type of eater subsidizing the other, or essentially that's what it's doing so that everybody can just get what they want. Very equitable of you. That's I like that because I tend to go for the vegan options when I can or the tofu ones. And mm -hmm. you're right. A lot of times it is more expensive. And, um, and I, I like your, I like your ethos around that. You want me to hear the crazy thing? The, yeah. the tofu is actually the cheapest. Oh, Really? Yeah. Wow. You don't I didn't say. know that. <laughs> vegans are used to paying more, which is completely yeah. unfair. So we actually, yeah, we, no, love, it is. we love our tofu eaters. They, uh, yeah. they have the best budget. <laughs> wow. That is really good to know. I would have thought that would have absolutely been your most expensive item. So who knew? Yeah. Trust me that as a going into business, that was one of the weirdest things I found out. You don't want to actually look at the, the, the numbers. And I was like, but wait, yeah. <laughs> hmm, interesting. So also you have, um, you have a rule about tipping and some of the, your policies around that and that, and I don't know if you still have this, but I was reading that you don't accept tips, which has received some mixed reviews from customers who really want to tip. And I know that, you know, especially in the United States and our culture, I just, we, you know, we've had these conversations before with other folks on the show, but the tendency is to always want to tip something or you feel really, you feel bad. It's just part of the restaurant experience. So Talk to us a little bit more about that. For sure. And I, I completely agree in a full service setting. I just think that like the, that line keeps getting pushed. Like, I'll be on it. Like at the end of the day, we're fast casual. Like we're just, we're, we're being friendly and talking to you, but we're just putting it in. So I believe in the system of, we pay our employees more than minimum wage. We take care of them. And I have costed the food appropriately to be able to pay them appropriately. It shouldn't rely on, on them, you know, on the generosity of consumers, which is hit or miss, not to mention, I just, I find sometimes that, that 
interaction is awkward between the person and then when you're, you know, turn the screen to them to be like, how much are you going to tip? Um, so I just wanted to avoid that whole awkwardness, make it a just smooth, seamless experience for everybody. Um, but you're right that it's so ingrained in our culture that we've had some pushback from, I mean, it's the, it's, it's very sweet and it's positive. But they're, like, they're like, but we want to tip and we want to show our gratitude. And I was just like, just buy more yeah, like, and I'll, <laughs> I'll, then I will have more sales and I will pay my people more or like I can increase the prices if you want. Um, but, <laughs> but other customers might complain about that. Just like the idea is like, give me the power as a business owner to take care of my people properly and, and not relying on, like I said, like whether the customer's having a good or a bad day. Well, this is an ongoing conversation that we have here too about, about minimum wage and just paying people a fair wage and that a lot of folks and myself included have kind of, you know, I've, I've considered this as well about tipping culture in general. And like, I would rather you offer, you charge more and you treat your employees better and that you charge me a little yeah. bit more and have it all baked in so that they can get the same benefits that I do working a full-time job, which is, you know, in the U.S. at least 401k, health insurance, the whole, the whole gamut. So um, I like I, I like that you're you're thinking about that as well when it comes to your staff. Sure. Especially in a fast casual where there's only so much interaction. I I understand the argument a bit more in a full service where um, I'm I'm one of those people that very much believe it. like so if tipping is supposed to work as an incentive, you actually need to vary your tipping um, range or else you're not doing anything. The problem is the reason the system doesn't work whatsoever is everybody pretty much goes to an average 18 to 20%, whatever. And even if you go 18 versus 20, like that 2% isn't enough to really make a big impact. Whereas, so we'll go to the extreme where like, and, and this is rare, but if they really like are not making an effort and being rude or being careless, then they get 10. But if they're really awesome, then they get 30 and normalize it that way. But in the, we, no one uses it that way. Therefore, it doesn't work as an incentive. Therefore, the system is is useless. Basically, actually, the other argument I make is anybody who says that if you remove tipping, then people won't have any incentive to be decent <laughs> service people, like go to Japan. Yeah, There's zero tipping and it's the best service in the world. So that just proves it's it's just a culture thing and people have to be taught that, you know, you should just be um, proud of your job and be a decent person um, in general, not just as a fake way to get a tip. No, it's true. It's funny how the, the capitalistic argument is always the one that comes through that without the incentive of that extra money in front of you, you won't want to, you know, be polite to your table. But it is, it's interesting culturally how in other places, it's not like you go someplace and you just completely ghosted by your waiter because there's not tipping culture there. Uh, it's, it's, you know, creating a good work environment and taking care of your workers and giving them, like you said, a job that they care about and, and a good work environment. Exactly. It usually seems to be enough for them to show up and do a good job and, and they want to <laughs> keep that job too. So, mm -hmm. I mean, that's still, that's still the case. So I guess for you, what is staffing? You said you, you hire, you employ a lot of younger people because it's fast casual, but what does staffing look like for you? And like, I guess, in a fast casual environment and someone who's coming more from the startup world, has there been any crossover from your previous work in the tech side of things and the kind of, not kind of, the very different uh, pace of the restaurant world that you've you've seen work together? Like, has anything been like a weird education for you or how has it worked when it, when it comes to, to staffing up and, and training these people? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's been quite the learning curve, but I, I love it. Um, 
more than I expected. I actually, I think one of the big things for me is the immediate feedback loop you get in the restaurant industry. Like you're not in the tech world, things move slow. And even then when they happen, you're behind a screen. This is like when in a restaurant it's, it's chaotic. And when, when things go wrong, they blow up in your face really fast. And that's exciting, but stressful, but that's kind of, I thrive in chaos. So I kind of love that part. There's also the immediate feedback loop of just like, you're giving people food and they tell you right away if they like it or not. Um, and <laughs> yeah, very in your face. But then uh, in a training staff perspective, it's kind of interesting because I would be a hypocrite if I looked at experience too much because I had zero and I just figured it out. Um, we've also designed it to be streamlined enough that like the, the restaurant, the food part's not rocket science. So we really focus on hiring more for like attitude, work ethic, personality. We just build a team of people we'd want to hang out with. The rest I can show you. I mean, it's, it's funny. One of the things I say a lot, people always go, oh, you know, you, you own a restaurant, you must love cooking. I was like, no, no, no. I open a restaurant because I hate cooking and I can't cook. So therefore I have a restaurant <laughs> that can cook to do it all for me. I like yeah, that. I, I just bring stuff home. So there's no excuse for me to have to like come home and have to cook. Cause like, I'll just bring donor home every night. Oh man. It's the best. I mean, for real. That's a good option. That's, right? that's a good dinner option to have every night. I wish yeah. that I had that option every night. I mean, I'm always scrounging to feel like, oh, what do I make tonight? Pesto with pasta or, or tomatoes <laughs> tonight? Like those are the options. So I like that. I like your tech startup mentality around this, around your business. And it's funny because in the tech world, in the startup world, you're dealing with such small teams that I do think that a lot of it is this. We just want to, we need somebody that knows how to like, that can get it done. But a lot of it's just like the team ethos and the way that you you deal with the team and the hangout. And I'm wondering if um, I know that your your fiance is the co-founder of Shopify and he's also one of your your business partners with Wolfdown. And I'm wondering if that influenced any of the ways that you do your business or how it influenced. For sure. I mean, there it, it made me always like I, I think about scale from day one. Um, so the, the same way that we designed it for delivery, we designing we're the simpler something is, the easier it is to replicate it. So that's one thing that we have our, our sights on from the start. And now that we're looking to start to expand, um, there's certain things I know we have to put in place. So just understanding scale is is something that, of course, they've really opened my eyes to. Yeah. Um, and then he also had a big part to play in building their their whole like culture and HR. So that's something else that I've, I've kind of learned a lot from him. And that translates in just the way, even, even the way, not that I took this from him, but uh, he gets a kick out of it. Um, but even the way we do interviews. So we don't, first of all, I don't look at resumes. I don't care about resumes. They don't tell me anything. It's just a piece of paper. So I just tell like, and in our online application, it just says, tell me something interesting about yourself. And oh wow, either come up with something or not. And we've had... So when they don't come up with anything, you're like, okay, it's not a non-starter. It's just like, okay, I've got nothing to go with. But some of them come up with like some really crazy random facts and you're like, all right, now I've got a feel for you. <laughs> and then they come in and we just chat with them. And I'm like, if I'm able like to have a conversation with you, that's all we need as a basis. Like if, yeah. if I can connect with you and then the rest can be talked. Like I said, it's not rocket science. So we're just 
hiring for good people that we want to hang with and teach them the rest. And it's funny because these, these kids are always like, that's it. Like, that was so cool. Like, I love that. Like they love that. We, I almost like by, by design, try to not be professional because I, I hate that like canned robotic kind of like high pressure situation. I mean, I've laughed a, a few times. I can tell the kids are like nervous and they're trying to not say the wrong things. So I kind of try to counteract that by, I mean, I've, I've probably have sworn in my like first interviews and the, the, the second you say like, Oh, f and then they're, they're like, they loosen up. Cause they're like, well, yeah. she did it. it takes the I edge off. Well, um, and then, cause you know, sometimes they say something like, Oh, excuse my, and I'm like, no, no, no. like, don't worry about it. So it's just like all about trying to get to like their true personality and just get a feel for who they are. And if I, if we could work with them and if they're going to fit like that's, I always say like, we'll just see if you're a fit. And they're like, what yeah. does that mean? Oh no, we'll feel, we'll feel it out. Well, I think it goes back to this whole, are you coachable? Are you a team player? Are you going to be participating with the team? Unless it's something super specific, like you might hire, like I need a web developer who understands how to develop websites, or I need a UX designer or something like that. Then fair enough, fine. You need someone that has a certain skill. But for this, it sounds like it's really, it's just, do you fit in this environment and do you want to learn and do you want to participate? So Zach, you were going to say something? Well, yeah, honestly, too, especially, yeah, in the restaurant industry, too, when you're hiring for different skill set like this, as opposed to, like, you're not hiring an accountant, you're not hiring a web developer. If you're doing something, for, especially for front of house experience like this, uh, it's it really is, it's really hard to kind of set up an interview process that makes it easy to find who's actually going to work well in practice. You can look at a resume and see that they've worked at 17 restaurants. It doesn't matter. They could have been fired from all of them or, like, been terrible to work with at all of them. You can easily figure it out asking i love that little trick about interesting fact about yourself i do too i um, want to use because that i feel now. like even i know if i were applying and i saw that someplace i'd be like that's incredible I um i would appreciate that this is my vibe it's so cool <laughs> i also think experience is a double-edged sword sometimes because we do things so differently and weirdly that you know if sometimes the baggage just doesn't help because they're gonna be like well at my old place i'm like i don't care like right. <laughs> this is how we do totally. it um yeah. so most of our employees have zero experience um and I'm like, it, it's funny, actually. Sometimes it backfires a little bit, but we'll, we fix it. Because, like, some kids, they've come in, and I'm like, then I find out they don't even know how to hold tongs. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> that can be taught, okay, though, right? Well, you know, exactly. You so. But you just don't. I, Have you ever made a sandwich ever? Oh, no. Okay, cool. <laughs> I figured out. Um, uh, but it's, it's all just attitude and, and their ability to just go, okay, you know, have humility and just be like, no, I don't know what I'm doing, but let, let's figure it <laughs> yeah. out. I was going to say, I'm really, really, cause you were talking about your, your first thing that comes to mind is scale. And obviously that's important because you're already talking about expanding a couple of years into existence here. Um, you already got Vegas and it looks like you have Toronto and a couple other places coming up down the line. What has the process been like for you? Because for most restaurateurs, that's like a pie in the sky thing. And there's gotta be, I, I guess your limited menu and your, your streamlined capacity for operations uh, makes it a lot easier to to expand on this, but what's this process been like for you so far? And especially as we come out of COVID and into the new reality, like what do you think the next few years are going to mean for for you guys and your company? For sure. Um, so I mean, I like a challenge. <laughs> so I, I I won't say it was the most obvious thing to do to go from Ottawa to Vegas, um, but there there's some rationale behind it 
to some degree because I actually, besides being a restaurateur, we're also poker players. So <laughs> I was reading that. Yeah, that's you awesome. are quite the poker player. It's a perfect fit. You got to teach me. So in our case, we're like it's literally like our second home. We spend a lot of time in Vegas. So that's where I am most of the time, not to mention uh, three of our investors are high stakes German poker pros. So, you know, they also are in Vegas very often. And we know all the po- like the top poker players. So from a, if you talk about like a marketing influencer perspective, that that's our niche and, and that's our network. You got to build an audience. Um, but also, yeah, but also, I mean, it's obviously inherently more challenging to go like, okay, I'm going to go to a different country in a different currency, different time zone with no existing like supplier base. And we're just going to try to figure that out. So that's, that's the challenging part, but knowing we want to grow and like kind of one, I'm always down for a gamble. It's kind of go big or go home, but, um, says the poker also, player. Yeah. <laughs> I was say, nice use of the yeah. word gamble there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But also we, we want to grow anyway. So might as well do the hard part first, which is open in both countries. And now we're going to have like Canadian East coast, American West coast. And we can just like two frontiers, just attack from both directions at the same time. The vice effect, as they call it, was it Napoleon, the vice effect. Yeah. And (laughs) another, another thing that may not be obvious, but from a strategy perspective, a lot of brands build their brand and then they go to Vegas. And I like to, kind of do the unconventional thing and I'm like what better place to build a brand than in Vegas where everybody from everywhere goes and will be exposed to your brand if you do it right and then grow from there not to mention a perfect city for kind of a late night appropriate food too if you ask me but oh yeah (laughs) and um I've one thing I've I've kind of figured out as we're getting close to opening this thing that's really interesting is Similar to Ottawa, because Ottawa is not one of those big major cities that people know about, right? So you kind of, as a an Ottawa brand that's growing, there's not many of us. So Ottawa's really kind of adopt, like just really proud of us. And we, we get a lot of love and attention just be, because there's so few brands that come out of here. And then the, the funny thing is I've gotten that same feeling in Vegas. They're like, oh, like, like you're actually growing your U.S. presence from Vegas. They don't have very many like actual Vegas born brands. Most of the brands are other big American, like they come from Chicago, they come from New York, they come from LA. They have those locations and then they go to Vegas. So they're, then they, they're just like seen kind of like a chain. Whereas like, this is the first one in, in the U.S. and it's in Vegas. And I'm already kind of feeling that local pride of being like, they're, they're really getting behind us. So that, that's that been really cool too. Well, I love that. And I look forward to trying Wolfdown when your shop opens in Vegas. And I I, I can always see where you're And I'm going to come to Ottawa to visit my friends and, and see you guys there up you there go. as yeah, well you too. Guys, Heck yeah. We love being food sure. influencers for these things. We have no problems with that. So <laughs> thanks for joining us today, Joelle. Really appreciate the conversation. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Joelle, thank you so much. So You Want to Run a Restaurant is powered by Back of House, the leading independent platform for independent restaurant operators to find, filter, and save on the technology they need to succeed. If you haven't checked them out yet, you need to head to backofhouse.io. All of their resources are free, and don't forget to subscribe to the free newsletter while you're there. This is honestly one of the best weekly restaurant industry roundups I've ever seen. Their incredible team of writers cuts through the noise and gives you the headlines that you actually need to see each and every week. 
It's built for restaurant operators and full of important industry news, expert perspectives, and special offers on cutting-edge restaurant technology. Follow Back of House on Twitter at BOH underscore news and at We Are Back of House on all other channels. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, Eat.News. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms.